Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, today's show is brought to you by us, Mind Body Green, and our new Nootropics collection of products, which includes Focus Plus, which can help support sustained daily energy and focus minus the crash, and Brain Guard Plus, which we think of as the ultimate brain nutrition for cognitive performance and mental clarity. So, after the show, go to mindbodygreen.com slash brain pod and use code brain code at checkout for 25% off your first order of either of our game changing nootropics products. Now to the show. Today, we have our resident PhD, RD, and VP of scientific affairs who goes by one name because you know her, Dr. Ashley back on the show alongside a new guest, Dr. Melanie Brownlow, who is a PhD and health scientist with a focus on nutritional neuroscience. She's authored over 20 peer-reviewed publications and is passionate about the connection between nutrition and brain health, which is the topic of our conversation today. Ashley and Melanie, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. Great to be here. It's great to have you both. Um, look, brain health, cognitive decline, ADHD. There's just so much going on in terms of what's happening to our brains. Um, it was a conversation I didn't have, we didn't have 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yet today, it seems like we're talking about these issues quite frequently. Uh, I know this is a big question, but what do you think is driving this epidemic? Um, Melania, I'll start with you. What do you think from a, a neuroscience angle, what's happening here? Yeah, this is such a great question. And I think that unfortunately it's not a single or even a straightforward answer. So one of the things that we know is that we, we certainly have better diagnostic tools that are really helping us detect these behavioral changes earlier and even more effectively. But from the neuroscience angle, I think that we, we can't really separate the brain from the rest of the body, right? So in school, we learn physiology as separate systems. But then the more we learn, we know that all systems are working together and we can't really separate the brain from the rest of the body. And at the same time that we see rise in all these conditions that you mentioned, neurological, behavioral uh, conditions, we also see uh, a steep increase in a lot of chronic and lifestyle-related conditions that are also, they're also on the rise, but if we're talking about underlying mechanisms, they are pretty much the same. So neurological disorders, psychiatric disorders, they also manifest um, together with things such as um, chronic inflammation, insulin dysregulation, so metabolic disorder, mitochondrial dysfunction, and, and gut dysbiosis. So when we actually look at these uh, neurological psychiatric conditions, we, if we put them under the microscope, the underlying mechanisms are the same as other metabolic conditions. So we're learning more and more about this connection and how we, and what we can do about um, improving metabolic health will actually translate into better cognitive health or overall brain health. So Ashley, it sounds something sounds like something we've talked about in this show quite a bit is metabolic dysfunction, downstream effect. 
I was going to say something similar with when Melanie was was chatting. I was going to mention the concurrent epidemics of diabesity, as they call it, and um, you know, nutritionally and movement wise in this country, we're not loving our brains <laughs> from a cardiometabolic standpoint. We are not loving our brains. We're a bit anti-brain as a nation how we're living. And uh, Melanie mentioned, you know, more sensitive and uh, precise tools to capture these. Uh, brain changes globally, nationally, but I think also we have some uh, really effective brain champions, brain warriors, Maria Shriver, Dr. Daniel Amen, and these voices, more avenues for their voices to be loud and heard, and that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, with a nation that's two-thirds overweight or obese, affecting our youngest generations earlier than ever, and massive nutrient gaps uh, documented in the literature, we, we, we have some issues. And then intentional consumption of toxins. Uh, we have continued, I think 12% of the nation can continues to smoke cigarettes and uh, binge drinking, like excessive alcohol consumption went up 20% during this pandemic. So um, these are toxins directly impacting our brain in a, in a negative way. So it's multifactorial, but as Mulaney said, brain not an organ isolated or siloed on its own totally impacted by the systemic health situation so you mentioned maria shriver and we've had her on the show and, and she's been a champion of women you know we discussed on the on the on the pod how years ago women weren't even studied in in, in research which is just mind-blowing men or women are you know a lot of ways they're similar but if you're talking to you know think about hormones but we are, we are very different and you know, women live longer than men, but at the same time, two out of three affected by Alzheimer's are women. So let's pause on that for a moment. What is happening specifically with women and Alzheimer's? Is it, is it hormones? Is it something else? I know that there's a lot of developing research here, but why do you think women are disproportionately affected? Yeah, first let me say that I'm very glad that this question is being asked more and more. Like you said, um, women were largely excluded from biomedical research for decades. And while this was well-intentioned, they were trying to preserve women of childbearing age, it really did bias uh, women or research against women in the case that um, precision medicine is really not possible when this, the majority of or half of the population is being excluded, so or underrepresented. And even when they are included in clinical trials, um, very few of those clinical trials are actually um, separating data or breaking the results by gender. So most of the science that, or the data that we've collected over the past decades relies on male brains. And uh, we know that this is really uh, um, not helping because a lot of, if not most of the neurological, even psychiatric psychiatric disorders affect women uh, a lot more than they do men. And as you said, Alzheimer's is a prime example. The two out of three patients are females. So you mentioned that women live longer than men, and this could play a small part in why women are, are um, more affected. But if you think about it, women don't live that much longer than men. And research is actually showing that what happens is women start developing the pathology sooner. 
much earlier than men. If you look at the neuropathological features in the brain, they're there decades before the symptoms start appearing. So yes, you also mentioned hormones, and that definitely plays a role. So we know that um, women's brains are different from uh, male brains from the moment of conception. Our brains age differently. And menopause actually plays a key role in, in what's going on with men. So the interactions between uh, brain and the reproductive system are crucial for brain aging in women. And these interactions are mediated by hormones and we know that hormones are different between male and female. So what's important is that these hormones are affecting longevity and also brain energy levels. So testosterone doesn't necessarily decline until much later in life. And it's really a linear steady decline. While um, estrogen, on the other hand, it starts fading midlife. And, and a lot of the neurohormonal or the neuroendocrine changes in men um, during puberty and pregnancy as well make so estrogen levels drop even far faster. So in this, we know it's not symptom free. So when we think of estrogen, we a lot of times think of reproductive health, but estrogen is actually a master regulator in the brain and it affects brain energy levels. So when your estrogen levels are high, your brain energy levels are high. When estrogen starts declining, which happens after pregnancy or uh, menopause or, or pre-menopause actually, then your energy, brain energy levels also start declining. And a lot of times when we think of the pre-menopause uh, symptoms, we think about insomnia, mood changes, hot flushes. These are neurological symptoms. They're not necessarily hormonal symptoms. So they're starting in the brain. So estrogen levels, if you think about the anatomical project pro progression of the symptoms, they actually coincide with um, declines in estrogen levels. So for example, estrogen starts declining the hypothalamus. It's one of the first areas where we notice this change. And hypothalamus is where uh, body temperature is regulated. So we're seeing here hot flushes and then following to, following, um, to hippocampus, or hippocampus and uh, that's where memory is processed. So we start seeing problems in um, executive functioning, memory loss, and even things like um, mood decline. We see changes in estrogen levels in the amygdala. So all that to say that hormones are vastly different in the progression of these uh, changes. They are very, um, they coincide with the symptoms that we are observing. So you said symptoms develop decades b before the real decline or, or, or the, the more noticeable decline or maybe perhaps a clinical diagnosis. You know, you mentioned executive function, like recall. Are there some earlier signs, maybe a little bit more subtle signs that one experiences much earlier, maybe in their 30s or 40s or you know, decade, decades out that we should be on the lookout for? Because if I'm listening, I'm saying, how do I know you know, this runs in my family and we'll talk about genetics and lifestyle. You know, it's, I think it's APO4E gene or, uh, how do I know I, I might have an issue? Cause I want to get ahead of it. Cause we're going to talk about genetics and lifestyle, but we know your genes are not your destiny. There's, there's lifestyle changes you can make. How do I know if I should be concerned 
now so I can get ahead of this? Yeah, so uh, first off, let me start by uh, just backing up a little. So the pathology in the brain starts years, if not decades, before symptoms appear. So not necessarily the symptoms appear first. Um, it's the, the neuropathological features that they're silent. And because your your body is, your, your brain is wired in a way where there's a lot of um, uh, redundancies, a lot of times you are able to get away with some of these losses or some of these detrimental changes without necessarily developing symptoms. So symptoms come much later when there's, it's really much harder to recover those um, brain losses and brain atrophy and, and uh, changes, detrimental changes in the brain. Um, as far as early signs, it's, it's really interesting because I think that sometimes we're um, a little too acutely aware of some of these changes and then we start second guessing, especially when you're working this area. But basically, there are lists of, uh, for Alzheimer's, for example, lists of very clear signs that something more than just being tired, being too stressed, or aging could be happening. And these are things like memory loss that actually disrupts daily life. For example, you forget how to get to work, or you forget um, that you even have to go to work, or something like that. It has to be detrimental. Um, challenges in planning or solving problems, forgetting how to, for example, if you have to stop at the grocery store on your way back from work, you have a hard time planning these things or planning multiple stops and not being able to um, to solve problems or problems that you would normally not have a problem with or not have a challenge with. Um, and that goes back to difficulty completing familiar tasks. If you're always able to balance your checkbooks, but now you can no longer do that, and that's a, a red flag. Uh, confusions with time and place or names, trouble understanding what other people are trying to tell you. So these things are, um, and they also need to be consistent. And not, it's not just, you know, you're really tired this weekend or you work hard or you just moved <laughs> all weekend long and now you're just exhausted. But when these things last for a prolonged period of time and they're really impacting your life, then it's signs that something, something more could be going on. So if those are probably, if those signs are probably later stage signs, and the, the, I guess what I'm, my takeaway from hearing you speak, there really aren't early signs. Uh, are there early, what should we be looking for? Are there certain lab results? If I'm going to go to Quest or wherever I get my blood work that I should be looking at, is it, you know, a rise and I'm making this up, uh, a, a rise in insulin or a, a rot, like are there certain markers if we get lab work once a year, we should watch that could indicate there's a potential problem 10 to 20 years out. In the same way, just in the same way, sorry, in the same way cardiovascular disease runs in my family. So there are definitely a set of markers that we look at all the time is make sure, you know, my LPA, my APOB, my particle size, you know, all, all those, all those things we look at for me for cardiovascular, do those same markers exist for brain health, whether it's Alzheimer's, dementia, or general cognitive decline? Yeah. So that's a really good question because it's, um, it's especially because it's a challenging one. So I think that for the longest time, researchers have, um, they have been relying on other markers, but they're mostly um, due to associations. For example, 
we know that um, type 2 diabetes is a risk factor for Alzheimer's. And there is really good evidence showing that um, even, so glucose levels, even within the normal range, but in the upper limit of that normal range, they are associated with uh, increased incidence of Alzheimer's disease. So there's a, a classic 2013 study from, I think it's in the New England Journal of Medicine that's shown this in over 7,000 people. And, and since then, it's crazy to think it's been almost 10 years now, but since then, many, multiple studies have replicated this data and shown that something like watching out for your glucose levels, insulin sensitivity, or hemoglobin A1C could be a good predictor. And that's just one example. I think that within neuroscience area, there's been some experimental biomarkers, but they're still not widely used clinically. There are things like PET scans. There are things like they would require um, CSF lumbar puncture to be able to measure levels of some of these amyloid beta or tau proteins in your CSF. So it's, they're not really clinically applicable just yet. But I think that's something that in mind, they're trying to understand how CSF levels of some of these biomarkers could actually correlate with blood levels. So they can then turn them into clinical tools, but we're not quite there yet. Got it. Well, I think it's a good call out, you know, metabolic dysfunction again, hemoglobin A1C, insulin, Ashley. Well, I'll, I'll just add, Mulaney, correct me if I'm wrong, but somebody dubbed Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes at some point in the past few decades. So hemoglobin A1C, but also from the blood flow and vasoendothelial function arena, like blood pressure has to be another surrogate. And then maybe systemic inflammatory status with like a high reactive C-reactive protein, CRP. But to Mulaney's excellent point. We're not there yet from the translation of the research to the go to your quest, have your doctor measure. I would say though, nutritionally, like, do you have them measure your vitamin D level? Like we have these surrogate markers of associations of things that are worth getting um, checked and easily fixed. I would add, these are not specific markers. So if you're going to look at something like hemoglobin A1C or infl inflammatory markers or um, CRP, so you're not, um, you have to take that into a larger context together with the behavioral changes, together with family reports. So sometimes it's your relative, it's your husband or your partner that will point things out. So because these are not exclusive markers, they are all associated with and helpful, but they're not particular to Alzheimer's. And to me, the, the, the message is, if you are at all concerned, whether you have a family history or not, get ahead of it. Because unfortunately, as we talk about dementia, Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, by the time you experience symptoms, you're getting late in the game. You, you want to get ahead of it now. And with that said, you know, I brought up genetics, lifestyle. I'm just going to skip the genetics piece because everyone who's listening to this podcast, everyone believes that your genes are not your destiny and lifestyle changes can work. And you, you guys are, you, our listeners, they're nodding. I'm getting, I'm getting a double nod, double strong nods. And so with that said, Ashley, I'm going to, I'm going to go to you on this to start. So lifestyle, lifestyle always starts with, with food. How, if, if I want to, 
be eating? I was going to start with sleep, Jason. Okay, sleep. Okay, well, let's go with sleep then. We'll go with sleep to food. The nutrition. I just had lunch, so I went straight to food. I, I, you know, I'm not tired yet, but let's go sleep and then food. Okay, yeah, the dietitian who likes a good night's sleep. Well, um, we talk a lot about sleep on Mind, Buddy Green, and so just great content for people to check out. But over a third of American adults aren't even clocking seven hours a night, to put that into perspective. And, um, you know, no, nootropics that we'll talk about in a bit here can get, uh, can be genuinely useful and like leverage daily for coming off of your night of sleep to help you tackle your day ahead. Um, and I, the other thing I was going to say lifestyle that's not food is thinking about these silent pathways. So I talked about toxins earlier, like detoxification and methylation are pathways that we talk about on mind, body green, these silent issues that people, you know, they're not obviously screaming at you until it's, um, you know, serious, like Jason found out and has shared on this podcast before with his homocysteine levels for his methylation, um, having that genetic polymorphism there. But both of these pathways are brain essential, brain essential. So I think we need to be cognizant early on of toxin inputs, helping ourselves detoxify. I'm not talking about a juicing cleanse for seven days. I'm talking about a daily detoxification um, mindset that can look like fruits and vegetables and fibers, and that can look like milk thistle extract and, and, and tools that are targeted as well. And uh, methylation looks like knowing if you have the 5-MTHFR SNP and being um, intentional about your B vitamins being bioactive, if that's the case. So um, in terms of food, so I can't remember, I was talking to someone on the editorial team recently about the, the, the food pyramid. I think, I think maybe somebody was writing in an article and I was like, no, no, that went away like a decade ago. We're in the my plate, guys. But I, I don't like the food pyramid, but I think for brain food, if we were to, you know, have an encore presentation for the pyramid, it would make sense. Reason being, there's like a foundational big base and then it goes up from there. And so if I had a base, I would actually be focusing on basically my gut and my heart, and then your brain will just be swell. Like if you focus on your gut and your heart, um, then, then your brain will be thanking you. So let's focus on our gut. I would say crazy colorful fiber laden color your plate uh, a la deanna minute here who melania and i both know well um an array of fruits and veg legumes nuts seeds spices these happen to also be chock full of antioxidants unique phytonutrients of which there are thousands and we're still discovering their phenomenal properties and then guess what? Your gut is not just a tube. It's uh, a very active organ communicating with your brain, the gut-brain axis. Um, in the fruit and vegetable realm, I'm a huge proponent of, I mean, this won't be very keto, which uh, Melanie knows a lot, of, a lot of keto science we should tap into here, but dark berries and berries in general, I, I think they're so brain essential. Um, Brain-loving polyphenols, you're looking at nitric oxide mediated vasoactive vasodilating your blood vessels um you know 
blood flow to your brain is probably like brain 101, <laughs> getting the getting the oxygenation and the and the nutrients to your brain. And then like if that was the base, coming up from there has to be marine omega-3s, EPA and DHA. Healthy fats in general, like we got the olive oil and the avocados are making an appearance, but um, you know, salmon is just trumping <laughs> salmon, you know, tuna. Any oily fish that's high in omega three is EPA, DHA. Smash sardines, mackerel, anchovies. Uh, smash does smash count for this? Smash it out. Yes, the smash is a good acronym and reminder of the oily fish here. Sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, and herring. If I got that right. There you go. Um, so protein is kind of like a given. So I don't want to say it's not in the pyramid, but your brain requires essential and non-essential amino acids daily. And then at the top of my pyramid, I'm going to put this big old jug of water. And then interestingly, this black coffee. <laughs> um, and then a key lineup of supplements. So mine would be a comprehensive multi um, I, I supplement my omega-3s, get them in my diet and in a targeted supplement. D3, 5,000 IUs, and then a couple of nootropic bioact uh, targeted bioactives that we'll discuss later. And then I'll say you you won't find alcohol um, in, in my pyramid, and then you'll find like movement. So someone's like dancing or running at the top. <laughs> and, and what about you, Melanie? Yeah, so um, starting with the lifestyle, I would actually tie the two that um, Ashley started with. She started with sleep and then she went to detox. And the way I look at sleep is actually um, sleep is a mechanism or conducive to detoxification of the brain. That's when your glymphatic system, which is just like your lymphatic system, your drainage um, mechanism for the brain, that's when it takes place or most of it. And research is now showing that a lack of sleep or poor sleep, chronic, chronic uh, poor sleep, leads to accumulation of uh, amyloid plaques in the brain. So the, the fact that people are sleeping less and less, as Ashley suggested, fewer than seven hours per night, that per, per se is already indicating that people are inflicting that on themselves. They're accumulating more and more plaque each night that they're not sleeping well or enough. So the two mechanisms go hand in hand there in my brain. So um, when you ask about lifestyle, the first thing that comes to mind, my, my daughter used to have this onesie when she was a baby <laughs> that used to say, eat, sleep, and play. And I love it, and I may or may not have bought that for her at a neuroscience conference, but <laughs> I love it because to me that's, that's so simple and that's just so accurate. I would, if I could only choose three, I would substitute play with move. So Ashley covered diet perfectly. She's um, hit all the main topics. Um, sleep, so important. I wouldn't necessarily rank them. I think they're equally important. And then exercise, any type of move, movement that you can incorporate in your day. And I know that people talk about high intensive, intensive exercises or, you know, boosting your cardiac rate. But to some people, that's great. If you're already healthy, if you're starting from a great baseline, great. But a lot of people are not. 
So I, I worked with, um, I volunteered at the Alzheimer's Association as a community educator, and I'm talking to those people, and they're asking basic questions, and these are patients or caregivers, and people that are, are starting from scratch, and they're not necessarily willing to go to a spin class or do HIIT workouts every day. So that's why I say, if you can start with just brisk walks, you know, five, 10 minutes in your lunch break, anything that you can integrate and sustain, and then build from there. That's great. That's a great start. And then if I can go back and add the play as the fourth um, action item there, I would I interpret play as anything that brings you joy or purpose or any sense of belonging. And to some people that could be religion, some people could be their social uh, circle, or it could be anything, a hobby, something that brings you joy, something that actually not only brings that sense of belonging, but helps with stress management. So it's an activity that helps you, you know, take your mind away from everyday stresses or worries or work-related problems. So anything that helps you disconnect a little. And as far as nutrition, I think Ashley hit all the, the big points. I do um, love the, the nootropics in the, the phytonutrients, because not only they're bringing that, those anti-inflammatory, antioxidant components, but they're a lot, they're very um, neuroprotective as well. So they're not only helping dampen oxidative stress, inflammation, but a lot of them are actively modulating neurological pathways, neurochemical pathways that are associated with mood improvements, with better sleep, and, and et cetera. And when we're talking about improving diet and movement and sleep, we are, I also I tend to think of these activities as their chain reactions. So you start with one and the others will soon follow. So sometimes it's easier to you know start with one because it could be overwhelming to do everything at once. And, and as far as supplements, I'm a big fan of um, foundational supplements. So Pill fatigue is a real problem. I know that I, I would love to try everything. And I, I think that there's so many great products out there, but I try to stay with the foundational ones. So the omega-3s, DHA, EPA, for sure. Magnesium, most people are uh, magnesium deficient and magnesium is so important for muscle health, relaxation, and for a lot of other, most biochemical reactions in the, in the body um, required magnesium. Um, anything that would improve gut health, for sure. I also like CoQ10 because mitochondrial efficiency, synaptic health. And these are all um, supplements or nutrients that are affecting multiple pathways. And again, there are those pathways that we talked about earlier that are associated with those underlying mechanisms, of gut dysfunction, immune uh, dysregulation or inflammation, and um, insulin resistance as well. So. They're foundational, but they're they're very multifunction. So that's why those are my go-to. You're mentioning like every product in our portfolio. That's how she will tell you. But then we'll run into pill fatigue, and we don't want that. Um, so with that, you know something something you said. You know when you're talking about joy, you said you know letting your your mind run away. And where I went was we've got like too mu too much of that. You know there is a huge ADHD problem right now and it seems to me that it's just getting worse you know i i 
think in our post-pandemic world, uh, make a huge generalization, we're over-prescribed, we're over-medicated. I think of Ritalin, Adderall. Uh, I, I think it's just safe to say we're probably over-prescribed. And as I think about ADHD, anecdotally, I've heard crazy stories about people being over-prescribed. I'm not going to go there, but like, do you, do you think... Like, what, what do you think is driving this? Am I just more attuned to it and it's amplified on social media or is social media driving this or is this metabolic dysfunction? Uh, in your opinion, is, is something driving ADHD? And what, what can we do in terms of lifestyle or nutrition if this is something we're concerned with? Um, I think it's actually a combination there because we are a, a lot more aware and I think there's also a decreased stigma, so we can um, be frank and doctors are uh, better equipped with some of that information to be able to recognize some of these symptoms earlier. So there, there's definitely an earlier and more um, accurate um, diagnostic process there, but there could be also environmental factors. And I think that those are, um, we need to be careful with what we say, because this is, very new it's emerging research we don't have the data to be able to say yes it's definitely environmental toxins or definitely um, nutrition but what we do see is that a lot of cases um, are also associated with the same mechanisms that mechanisms that we've been talking about so gut dysfunction inflammation and minerals um, deficiencies so there, it is a neurodevelopmental disorder, and there are deficiencies in certain neurotransmitters or chemicals in the brain. Some brain areas are um, smaller, so underlying there are some of the behavioral changes that we are observing. But a lot of times we need to step back and understand what is causing this deficiency in, the, in, the treat, in specific neurotransmitters um, or affecting specific brain areas. And I think that, um, yeah, I completely agree with you over we're being overprescribed. And what I worry about is that these are children and they're still developing and we don't want, you know, overly medicated children that don't have a fully developed brain. So I think that ultimately or optimally even, if we could start talking about combination, there should be medication, some behavioral support, but also, can we step back and look at some of the root causes? Is there inflammation? Is there gut dysbiosis? And can we start addressing those at the same time? Or even start there first, and then if needed, we add medication. Because I think that it needs to be looked at very carefully. Every, patient's, every patient um, is different. But if doctors could take a closer look at some of these items, what's the nutrition? Nutrition for children is... It's horrible. If you have children and school age children, you can see school lunches are appalling and kids' birthday parties are terrible. So I don't know. Can we start there? And can I, can I, can I blame TikTok too? Can, can we disagree? I think TikTok's problem. I'm going to blame TikTok. And I think that, you know, obviously the pandemic doesn't help, but we are stuck in the house. And I think that as adults, maybe we have a, a little, some of us have better coping mechanisms, but children don't. And they have um, devices all day long. And now they're learning how to be socially isolated because they have to, but also because they don't know any different. Some children don't know any different. 
So yeah, definitely. They're not outside. They're not playing in nature or socializing with other kids. So that's certainly a factor. So we've talked about nootropics, 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 uh, tomato, you say tomato, I say tomato. Uh, can you just articulate, define, how does it differ from a, from a quote unquote supplement? Like, how do you define nootropic and like what's happening in our, in our brain? Why, why is this category exciting? So I think that, so I see them as, um, not sure I have a clear distinction between nootropics and supplements because supplements could be nootropics too. So I think it's more about the mechanism of action. So ultimately they improve cognitive performance and chemically speaking, um, if it's a medication, if it's a nutrient, um, it doesn't really matter. I think that the mechanism is you're acting on, um, uh, neurotransmitters or neuropathways that modulate brain, brain functions. And they could be focus, memory, attention. Uh, and a lot of times that they could also um, just improve mood, which is also a great outcome to, to consider. But, and I think what's exciting for me is that you ask, you know, why is this uh, an exciting uh, area? I think that because it's never been more attractive, right? We're, we're busier than ever. Like you mentioned, we're overstimulated. So, it's really enticing to find something that helps us become more focused, more productive, more creative, and really um, just dis distinguish, you know, signal from noise. There's just so much noise out there. So anything that can help. I think nootropic, nootropic, how did you say it, Jason? Anyways. Nootropic, nootropic. <laughs> Speaking of tomatoes, lycopene is an excellent phytonutrient. No, um, uh, I'm going to shout out Emma Angler, uh, Mind Body Green's nutrition research scientist. She told me the Greek etymology of nootropic. Guess what it means? Mind turning. How interesting is that? And the term has only been, been used about 50 years in the early 70s um, is when it began. And I think mind turning is just fascinating because unlike Okay, so when a term goes from the science literature to colloquial use, which nootropic has done that, it can also risk, like, it can become cheapened. So this is like the energy shot at the gas station when you're on a road trip. Like, no, no, we're going to try and pull that back. I don't like to think of nootropics as a brain boost because the term boost is very... Um, transient and and not a sustainable lifestyle approach in general but if we think about mind turning this could be a nutrient like that that also functions as a neuronutrient this could be a phyto plant nutrient this could be a targeted bioactive otherwise um like you know l-theanine comes to mind or acetylcholine uh, cognizant and so it doesn't just have to be a, a, a boost like you're thinking directionally it could be it could be mental energy but it could be concentration and focus and cutting through noise it could be stress resilience i think melania you mentioned like calm I, I i love to capture the full i don't know if it's mind turning means we're turning 180 or 360 but we're turning and at the end of the day that could look like calm 
or in the middle of the year date. So we're talking about hemp now and ashwagandha, adaptogens and lavender and lemon balm. And then from the earlier set, we were talking about things like, you know, plant origin caffeine, not the fake stuff, guarana, ginseng, L-theanine, um, even B vitamins, depending on your nutritional status. And, and also some other ones that, that we feature in our portfolio, but from blood flow to the brain, all the way to like learning, processing info, laying down memories, cognitive performance looks like a whole exciting like spectrum and landscape of things we can tap into. So you're hitting on a lot of the ingredients we, we have in our products. So I'm curious if you're riding an elevator right now and someone asks you about our two new products, Brain Guard Plus and Focus Plus. So you're in the elevator, it's your elevator, elevator pitch and someone's contemplating Brain Guard Plus. Like who, who is brain, who, who can benefit from Brain Guard Plus? Okay. This is a really tall building, Jason, because you know, I'm so good. With- it's, I, I hate elevators, so it's going to be short. It's going to be, we're talking like 10 floors, not a fan of elevators. So yeah, Ashley's great at being concise. No, uh, so brain guard. We intentionally talk about it, whether you're 25 or 75, that was an intentional messaging because we believe that you can um, nourish and be neuroprotective from a young age on up um, and impact your brain health trajectory. So someone is seeking um, a precision nutrition tool daily to help them with things like learning and processing info. They want to be a lifelong learner. <laughs> um, memory. So like creating them, storing them, and then like bringing them back up. <laughs> memory. Mental clarity, um, focus, concentration, whatever that looks like. It could look like a little bit of fogginess that's lifted. Um, and then also there are ingredients in Brain Guard Plus that are helping with stress resilience. I call it in a in an email that I sent out to the Mind Body Green family. I personally take Brain Guard, and um, that's what it looks like. I called it my uh, my Zen zone. Yeah, Melanie is trying it too. Um, so Zen meaning like the Kana is really driving that there. An indigenous South African botanical. Um, it's adaptogenic and it's it's helping you be resilient to things that might induce a little bit of anxiousness otherwise. Um, and then you have just powerhouse neuronutrients, citicoline in the form of cognizant, and as well as resveratrol, which is a polyphenol phytonutrient. Um, all three of these have clinical trials to boot uh, and we're hitting it from all of our supplements are very like multi-dimensional hitting from multiple angles. So you get the memory, you get the brain blood flow benefits, you get the serenity and Zen zone, if you will. That was a long elevator. Oh, long elevator. We'll go with the shorter one. Fo- focus, I think, is a lot more straightforward. So what about focus? Can I have one thing? So we were talking about women's health earlier and gender differences, and there are great studies on resveratrol and uh, menopausal or premenopausal women, and how it actually improves uh, the blood flow, some of the menopausal symptoms. So there are great studies showing that resveratrol actually does benefit women at that, you know, mid to um, mid-age women, middle age. I love that woman-centric focus ad. Thank you, Lainey. Um Okay, so Focus Plus, it's one of our most experiential supplements. And 
the elevator pitches, this is both immediate and sustained mental mind and body energy, like for the day. Um, and so you're looking at focus and concentration. You're also looking at a crash free uh, technology. So this is the think of the benefits of your best world's best cup of coffee and like and then some but minus the crash um and the and then some is so plant origin caffeine from whole coffee fruit it's known as a cherry as well as the coffee beans um an ingredient that has clinical trial that demonstrates sustained release sustained benefit no crash um complemented by panax ginseng guarana uh, seed extract from the fruit the guarana fruit L-theanine and B12 in the methylcobalamin bioactive format. And that is just one capsule a day. Um, I take both of these supplements daily. Can I say that, um, just make a comment, I love the addition of, I'm going to say it my way, Guarana. I'm, I'm originally from Brazil. <laughs> so I love I love the Guarana ingredient and I don't see it often in products. And it's, uh, it's something that in Brazil is very common like before uh, exam week or we would take it normally and it's um, it's great and I love it. Uh, we, we love it too. I'm glad you called that out. Um, in, in terms of, so, okay. So in closing, let's zoom out. Is there one thing, if you had to pick one thing that everyone, no matter where they are in their health journey can do today, that will have an impact on their brain health. You had to pick one thing that anyone can do. What's that one thing? Ashley, I'll start with you. What's the one thing? I would say just sleep, sleep more. Okay. Melanie? I would say cut um, refined sugars. Okay. There you have it. Um, such a pleasure, such a big topic, an important topic. And thank you so much for coming on the show to, uh, go a little bit deeper on cognitive decline brain health and all those scary issues we are all unfortunately thinking about right now ashley Blaney, thank you so much thank you it's been a pleasure